Howdy, folks. This is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast and the CEO of HW Media. I'm just getting back to home and our office in Dallas, Texas, after a couple days out in California at the CMBA Mortgage Innovators Conference. And coming off of that event um, where there was a lot of talk about AI and innovation and how lenders are building the tech stack of the future to enable more efficient operations, I was really happy to be able to take some of that knowledge and talking points into today's conversation with our guest, Mr. Simon Moyer, the VP of Banking Compliance Solutions at Walters Kluwer. Simon has an incredibly interesting background in technology and mortgage and banking technology and has a really smart approach to how he thinks about innovation happening in our housing ecosystem today. We talk about AI, we talk about the tension between technology and regulation, and we talk about the current state of the tech and fintech world and some of the dynamics that have changed in terms of valuations and M&A and the way that investors are thinking about investing in and backing the technology companies of the future that will be partners to mortgage lenders and real estate companies as we build the future of housing. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Simon Moyer. All right, Simon, welcome to the Housing News Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. I'm excited. All right, Simon, we're going to have a pretty broad ranging conversation today going through AI and talking about technology and regulation, such important topics when we talk about implementation and technology actually coming into fruition in the mortgage industry and talk a little bit more about the state of the fintech world that's uh, changed quite a bit in the in the last 15 months, especially when it comes to funding sources and, and end market performance. But Simon, before we jump in, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your career path that's kind of uniquely qualified you to, to speak on these topics. And I mean, I've been following you since eOriginal and, and now in your role at Walters Kluwer, but I'd love to hear more about your, your path in financial technology and in the mortgage industry. Yeah, sure. So um, everyone might hear an accent. Uh, so I'm originally from uh, New Zealand and in the mid 90s, I started my career uh, really in the, the banking space. Uh, so this was in New Zealand. EDS had come in and acquired the top uh, companies that serviced the, the major banks and the major government departments, and I joined that that organization. But like all good uh, New Zealanders, Kiwis, uh, we, we want to go and see something a little more. And uh, so I traveled and went both uh, to, the, to the UK first uh, and then came to, uh, to America. And um, when I really got into mortgage was around 2005. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a mortgage at that time? It was uh, it was booming, right? It was hot. You're coming into the the, the hottest sector. Money was being made. It, it was, and so I was a you know on insurance for a little while, and so came across into into mortgage and joined a, a privately held company called Dorado, um, and uh, you know I believe it was really the first SaaS uh, LOS platform out there, and that really played out well for us because when we had the housing crisis. Uh, we actually had this recurring revenue that continued and really allowed us to continue to support that, uh, our own organization, but also our clients, right? We were able to continue in, to invest because they continued to, uh, to pay us. And that was acquired, right? Uh, all the things that you want to, to happen. It was acquired by CoreLogic. Uh, and after, after spending a little bit of time uh, with them, I left 
And I finally found uh, eOriginal, uh, which was a, a privately held company um, that started in mortgage about 20 years prior, um, but had stepped away from it. And they were looking to come back into it because a number of their clients were saying, okay, we're doing digital this way for these types of assets, but maybe we could do it for mortgage again. I didn't know that part of the original, the original story. I didn't realize that it was a, a verticalized business. So where else were they spending time and serving customers? What other asset classes? Yeah, sure. So a lot around auto, uh, you know, with personal loans, student, um, equipment leasing, um, a number of different places because we have laws in this, um, in this country that allow us to do these things digitally. Uh, and although mortgage hadn't really picked up in the, the beginning years, um, the other asset classes had, certainly auto. Um, and we do a massive amount of auto. So it was interesting, right? When we came in back into mortgage, um, there was a, a sort of a, a thought of like, well, who are these people, right? There's, there were people who had stuck around with mortgage and we were coming back in and we could point um, to really the scale that you can achieve. And so we were, you know, lucky enough, you know, to be able to tell that story and, and start initiatives with Quicken, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Wells Fargo, et cetera. So it was a, a certainly a fun ride. All right. That's, that's really fascinating. All right. So eOriginal, you're back in the mortgage industry, helping eOriginal develop, redevelop its presence in mortgage with some of the learnings from auto and other asset categories. Where does the story go from there? How does it lead to Walter's Clore? Yeah, sure. So um, there was actually discussions uh, um, between WK and, and eOriginal going back some years, uh, even just before I joined, but it wasn't quite right. Um, but we knew, um, you know, after we got some private additional private equity money that we were going to build this organization to be something that a, a real strategic wanted. And I think Walter's Clue was just the, the perfect fit. Right. They were very strong um, in, in documents and they were very strong in compliance analytics, really around fair lending, CRA, Humder, et cetera. What they missed was this middle block, right? The really the transformation to true, you know, to true digital lending. So where we could go from creating the documents to closing those and then managing them on the secondary market and also delivering them uh, the data to uh, the regulatory agencies. So it was just a, it was really a, a great match. Uh, and so when I came in, uh, I got the opportunity to be the segment leader for that larger, larger offering. So still very involved in the original and care about it very much. It's still a real growth engine for us. Um, but got to see it across a, a larger scope within the, in the, in the space. And this transaction was in 2021, correct? It was. Uh, I think actually end of 20 was uh, when, it, when it really happened. Um, and um, yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was good for everyone. But I think the, the, the most important thing really, and this sort of goes into you know, fintechs in general, is it was founded by a guy, Steve Bisbee. Um, and he was involved in helping write the rules and the laws and everything that allowed us to do this across this uh, this country. Um, but it was super powered uh, when LLR, which was the private equity company based in Philly, came in, uh, and Brian Maddox is the CEO. And really, he put together a team that knew how to find sustainable growth and also deliver profitability. Right, because a strategic like um, you know Walter's Kluwer, 
that mix is really important, right? They're not going to just buy a company that just has this growth but doesn't have any profitability. And so, you know, the rule of 40, uh, you know, was played out very, very well, Brian, uh, you know, brought together a great, uh, great leadership team, and and it made it really attractive um, because we were growing, um, but we did bring uh, you know profitability margin to uh, to Walter's Clue. Yeah, and so for our our non SaaS private equity folks in the audience, rule of forty is the uh, the combination of growth rate and margin profile, and and why, and why does that matter? Why does that matter to the investor community? Um, well, so it's 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 the mix, right? If you're growing really fast, it's it's okay to grow fast. And not have that profitability, right? If you're not growing as fast, you better show some uh, some some good margin. I think there's also, and I haven't discussed this with everyone, but I think there's this nice balance um, between not trying to exceed it as well, right? There's, I mean, you obviously want to grow as fast as you can, but there's unsustainable growth, right? There's growth that might occur just under certain circumstances. And if you can't control those circumstances, you need to make sure that, you know, you, you have other angles that you can, uh, you can take. That's interesting. So, so not exceeding the rule of 40 by too much of a degree. So like, do you take a view that like, if you have a business that can grow at the 30, 40, 50% kind of annual rate, um, you know, maybe intentionally spin down that margin profile to maximize top line versus trying to like, uh, yeah, give, give me a little more detail on why you think you might not want to exceed by too much. Well, I think it's just, um, I think I worry about uncontrollable numbers, right? Just, um, look, we can all be doing great things. Um, but you know, we all know that thing. If it's, uh, if it's too, it's, if it sounds too good to be true, it possibly is, right? And I think that's, you know, what we've seen with, uh, you know, some of the fintechs that, you know, have, have struggled more recently is because that, of that uncontrollable growth, um, uh, as their, as their approach, right? I'm now I live on the East Coast. I've worked for West Coast companies as well. I, I sort of consider it an East Coast, West Coast mentality. Hopefully I'm not offending anyone. It's probably more likely to do with VCs versus private equity, um, you know, um, companies. Um, but I think finding that right balance, and that's quite honestly what a lot of what I learned from uh, from Brian Maddox is right: be controlled, be measured, um, deliver on what you uh, what you say you're going to do. Yeah, I have a few friends from business school who are running a a, a venture fund of funds out of the Raleigh Durham area. And there, it's called Front Porch Capital, and their whole like thesis is on some of the the differences between East Coast and West Coast investing, and investing around the Southeast, which like ultimately brings in a, a whole different type of entrepreneur, a whole different type of uh, growth strategy, and and in the end, I think a, a different valuation profile as well. Um, it so uh, that East Coast West Coast thing is a um, is a concept I think some investors are are starting to latch onto. Yeah, I, I feel like we were building something real, right? That was sustainable, uh, and that has proven out as we have come into to WK as well. I think um, uh, just the thinking about how we connect as an organization, as individuals within WK as well, because we were building a real company. They they are a real company. Um, the the combination was a very easy 
easy fit. So I think it's interesting you bring up LLR. So like I'm I'm right now watching what they're doing with most recent acquisition of of Mortgage Coach and Sales Boomerang and bring that into one business with with Trust Engine. They've developed LLR has developed an, an interest or an expertise around the, the housing tech space. Am I, am I right there? Yeah, look, um I I had great experience with them. Um you know, I think they they do the right amount of due diligence. Uh, they give the right support to the organizations, right? Like I think some people worry about folks being overbearing or maybe not being able to provide anything other than just cash. Uh, and they really struck that that balance. And again, if you think about, you know, mortgage tech and everything like that, you know, we need to be reminded of those uh, those balances. And, uh, you know, I think they're a great organization. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely hear you on the, the balance. I, like no operators who work for... Um, overbearing uh, sponsors and uh, and uh where like the the CEO job quickly becomes one of um uh, updating the operating partner or the the deal partner uh every day every week and not as much operations or just getting just getting handed tuck in acquisitions to integrate without much strategic thought uh so um yeah the balance is is definitely important it it is the balance so i i talk of a lot about yin and yang um because not everyone's the same as me and I'm not the same as everyone else, but I feel like we can learn so much, right? So as long as that dialogue is is happening between folks, um, you know, I've had people, you know, say, right, like, um, you know, why are you listening to to that person so much? Or, you know, that 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 person's not doesn't have the same view of you, Simon. And I'm like, that's because I want to learn that view. Right. Like I either want to teach that person my view and, and, and maybe if I'm right or there's a belief that I'm right, they will they will convert or maybe I'll learn something from them. Right. Because we've all been on these different journeys. There's no exact right answer. And so I think that yin and yang and, and, and Brian and I were a bit like that. Right. He needed a, a lot of data. But when he made the decision, he made a very accurate de- uh, decision. Right. Uh, whereas I might be a little faster on the decision making, uh, I use less data, but maybe I'm not always as accurate, right? So that balance and and testing each other uh, was a really fun part of uh, of the trip. Uh, that's cool. So E Original is already playing in like I think where a lot of people in the industry are calling kind of the, the messy middle right now, where more innovation needs to happen during COVID in that like 2020 2021 period a lot of focus was going to like the front end and the back end of the transaction. People were trying to figure out remote online notarization and how do you close deals in a, in a distributed world where everyone's in office and go to a title company. Um, but WK was, uh, you know, already, you know, kind of thinking about the middle in this, in this acquisition. Can you talk a little bit more about like why focus and mindset was or focus on the part of the transaction where e-original was working was a priority for WK in 2020, 2021, when uh, it seemed like a lot of energy and capital was going to other parts of the transaction. Yeah. So, you know, of course we're involved in the, in the closing and, and have many connections to, to different uh, remote notary providers uh, and also in person, uh, you know, notary platforms as well. I think what our focus was, was about the most important document in the package, right? That being the promissory note. Um, and, and that is really the, the ecosystem that we had created. Um, and so when I, when I talk about that is, you know, we, we're going to originate, we're going to create the documents, 
we're going to close electronically. And of course, there's a million definitions of what a digital close can be, right? Whether it's just one document uh, that's a disclosure, whether it's uh, the, you know, the, the deed or whether it's the note or, or some hybrid um, of it all. Um, but with the focus on the digital note, that took us into, in essence, the capital markets, right? Whether it was the warehouse lenders, whether it was the investors, uh, even securitizations that we do a large number of securitizations across our different assets. Um, that gave us sort of a, a value proposition that was very different. Um, e-signature, uh, you know, some people might say it's a commodity. Some people may say it's not, right? But, but that's sort of that front end is important, but the back end is even more important, right? Because that's the asset that actually survives. That's the asset that someone pays off or that when you go to court, you need to prove that this is, uh, you know, both legal and enforceable. Uh, and that was really E-Originals focus. And I think, you know, WK saw that we were a unique uh, player in that space um, that really could create its own ecosystem to expand uh, across, right? We, we connect into lots of signature tools, lots of notary platforms, um, down, uh, down um, you know, stream uh, applications. But at the core of it is that is that vault. So... Simon, I just got back from the CMBA Mortgage Innovators event, and there's a lot of talk about about e-close and the electronic process. What are some of the, the headwinds and tailwinds that that you see in this like in 2020 the 2023 market to adoption of of e-close and, and moving forward into a more digital mortgage ecosystem? Yeah, look, I'm super passionate about it because I believe we actually have everything in place. Right. Um, we have the laws and regulations that, that allow us to, to do this, um, really nationally across, uh, you know, this, uh, this country. Um, we have great technology providers, right? Um, it's not just WK that's delivering these solutions to market. There are many others as well that are delivering solutions for certain target markets. And that's fantastic. Right. So I think there is a, an ecosystem that is, is really growing and, uh, able to deliver value to the lenders and their, um, you know, ecosystem participants. I think what is, is one of the major headwinds, um, obviously, um, the first one to consider right now is really about, um, you know, funding. You know, do people have money to, to invest right now? Um, you know, there's always this adage, right, of, uh, you know, when times are good, you don't have the time to invest. When times are bad, you don't have the money. Um, but I think for the folks that are starting to invest now, when that growth pattern happens, uh, they will be able to take great advantage of it, right? And we saw that with folks like, uh, you know, Quicken, who certainly has led the charge, um, you know, on this. So, the, okay, if we get past the money, someone's ready to invest I think the first thing is, and um, this is a, this is, I believe, a, in some ways, a self-created headwind, right? And I and I mean that with all respect, but this is this is tough, but also easy at the same time, right? If you put together the right team and know why you're doing this, right? Are you doing it? For cost of capital? Are you doing it for efficiency in the back room? Are you doing it for customer experience? If you're true to that, to what your goal is, there is a pathway forward, 
I think many times people try to create, uh, you know, all of these pathways at the same time, right, and try to go down all of these pathways. And that really causes confusion, right? And so, you know, we've had different approaches, right? There's obviously, you know, sort of this pre-sign package, right? So let's sign as many documents as you can before you actually get to the closing table because that settlement agent may not actually be that well-equipped. So let's understand that and let's make it as a lender the ability to do that pre-closing. Maybe it's a note, right? Maybe we care about the speed at which we execute into the into the secondary market. I was talking to a lender friend at CNBA and like they're talking about like project prioritization and like going and talking to um, his CEO and says to her, uh, "Hey, we got we got bandwidth for a project right now. Do we want to work on work on eclose or should we like put some more uh, money into sales development and lead gen and drive more revenue?" And it's like, whoop! Like the attention goes to to revenue instantly. But the framing that you just mentioned of hope, what you hope to get out of the innovation project is, is probably something that should be part of of that conversation and the, the promise of efficiency or better capital markets like eventually flows into the P&L in a meaningful way. It a- a- absolutely does. Um, what I, you know, m- my comment back to that, that person, your friend would be whatever you choose, take it seriously. Right. Like, you know, I think that is one of the concerns is that people have so many different projects to work on that we spread you know, our resources too thin and, you know, maybe none of them are successful. How did, so, okay. So we get rid of this uh, self-imposed headwind and we see mass adoption across the industry. How does that change the, the org structure, human capital strategy for, for lenders and for our industry, if we are able to get past some of these, these hurdles? Yeah. So look, I think the first thing is this is not necessarily about, you know, taking those costs and saving them somewhere, right? It's about reinvesting it. Technology. I don't, I don't know of any technology project that has gone in and people have actually been able to verify that they have actually saved money, saved resources or anything like that. What always happens is they, they, they are, you know, able to grow faster. Right. They are able to redeploy those, uh, those resources into another, another area. And so I think, you know, you know, maybe the spend doesn't change, but in regards to the value add that they are able to bring to the organization, those resources deliver a far, far lot more. Yeah. So, um, on, okay. So no, on no technology actually delivering like lower headcount and immediate cost reduction. That seems to be the promise everyone's making on, on AI and like the, the topic of AI. And, uh, I don't know, different, you know, you hear like the human capital friendly talking point that this uh, enables people to be operate at their highest and best and, and be more efficient and be more productive and everybody earns more money. And then kind of the, the more like, grumblings in the back room like yeah we're gonna be able to reduce headcount by 20 percent if we get this right and uh so so w- w- let's talk about ai for a minute what is, how's ai coming to the industry and what's the impact potential impact there well i mean the you know you talk about reducing headcount i mean if you if you read the news right now i think 40 percent of ceos of large companies right these are these are folks like walmart uh, coca-cola um, you know, say that in ten years humanity might not exist um, because of uh, because of AI. So, so maybe our, our 
least problem is uh, is whether we're going to reduce headcount or or not. That's that is a great soundbite to get you a lot of press on business uh, television. I think that, <laughs> that's what that is. It, it is, but I mean, there is obviously some concern. I mean, there have, there was an open letter by a number of experts in this uh, this space as well that said, "Hey, we need to." control and manage this uh, in the appropriate way. Now, I'll tell you, um, I haven't thought of all of the different ways that humanity could end uh, or really how truly bad it could be. I, I, I can't get quite get my head around that um, because lots of people have promised things, uh, you know, in the positive and negative for any sort of in the moment, uh, you know, tech change, right? Crypto and, uh, you know, and Bitcoin and everything like that was going to change everything, right? It's That's not the hot topic any longer. Um, so I think, you know, just, just going back to the initial question about AI, you know, first of all, it's not new, right? We've been talking about AI. If you look at any, you know, software companies, uh, you know, press releases for, for years, they've been talking about machine learning and, and AI. I think what's happened now is it's got into um, the general population, right, as an idea, right, because of, you know, this generative uh, AI approach, right, that you see with chat, GPT, right? Finally, I can, uh, you know, write a, a letter to, to someone and I don't have to write it and chat, GPT can do it, right, or I can get a painting or whatever it might be. And so... Uh, I think the, the the population can understand those sort of uses of AI in a in a in a better way, right? Um, but again, it's just it's just taking a massive amount of data, right? Putting some predictability against these patterns, right? And then reproducing those patterns. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and I think that's when we think about pushing it into mortgage and and other other lending is. That's what the regulators are going to be worried about, is when is it good and when is it bad? We may have just gotten back from Gathering of Eagles, but we're not done with events for 2023 yet. This October, we're headed right back to Austin, Texas for Housing Wire Annual, and we want to see you there. We've got a power-packed agenda with content such as our Women of Influence speakers, peak performer playbooks, CEO playbooks, and more to propel your company forward, as well as a bunch of networking events. Because this event is open to real estate executives, mortgage title, and everyone in between, you really have the opportunity to network with people from all across the housing ecosystem. If you want to learn more about the event, or if you're already ready to get registered, head over to housingwire.com on the events tab and you can learn all about it. Not to mention, if you're an HW Plus member, you're going to get 50% off your ticket. So get registered for HW Plus and get registered for the event so we can see you out in Austin. All right, so where the let's let's take the the abstract and uh, and apply it a little more tactically. Like, where are people applying AI today under its current you know, under its current iteration? And I also feel like AI. I feel like we were was the or robotic process automation was like round one that the industry talked about ad nauseum for the last half a decade, and then machine learning, and now AI with you know a little bit of distraction for 
blockchain and, and NFTs in there, but like, where's the actual like tactical application? Where are the innovators actually putting AI to work in today's mortgage ecosystem? Yeah. So I think things like, uh, you know, underwriting, uh, AVMs, right? Anything that is, you know, being highly repeated um, and does work on a large amount of data, or perhaps the better way of saying is could work on a large amount of data, right? Our traditional systems have required us to, in essence, um, structure it in a way that is, um, could, it could be considered very limiting, right? You know, you think about credit scores and things like that. There's only certain drivers that, 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 um, you know, lead to an answer. Um, and we're starting to see, you know, other credit scoring uh, mechanisms come out that I think are going to, you know, use AI or are already using AI. So like AVMs, for example, are only as good as the data that that's coming in and, um, bad data can, compound itself through through machine learning and create take small deltas and turn them into to large deltas so how and, and the risk there is like you get into fair lending concerns and neighborhoods that have had his, historically um uh uh reduced home prices because of like some bias or or misperception and that gets compounded over time how do we prevent fair lending concerns uh and other kind of issues popping up in the housing ecosystem as ai plays an increasingly prevalent role in in really important steps like underwriting yeah look the regulators are there um they have already stated right the cfpb um, the EEOC, uh, the Justice Department, and the FTC have all said, right, that um, they are committed, right, to enforcing fair lending, um, no matter you know how you're how you're deciding your lending, right. To say that it was decided in a black box uh, is not acceptable, right. You're going to need to know how how it comes from. And I mean, I think even the uh, someone in the Fed gave an example, right? And this was this was around employment and resumes, right? A huge amount of data had been collected, and in essence, that machine started uh, pushing forward resumes that were, um, you know, male uh, resumes, right? Because of that historic data, right? That that didn't that historic data didn't mean it was good data. It just said it was that was the decisions that had been made made prior. And I think so people, you know, not just with the fear of the regulator, but with the fear of making uh, needing to do the right thing, right, just as a human doing the right thing for people, a need to understand how those AI, you know, systems work and what the, you know, positive or negative uh, implications can be. Yeah, big data has made it very easy to to identify trends. And if you're if you're uh if the algorithm or AI is just pushing forward a trend that could take us in some really bad directions. So Simon, in preparation for this conversation, you you talked a little bit about the, the tension between technology and regulation. And I think now that like AI is, you know, front and center as, you know, something the consumer thinks they understand because they played with chat GPT and the regulator thinks they understand because their, their niece uses Dolly to create artwork. Um, where, where do we go? wrong on like regulator attention on uh innovation and housing like is this a um could regulators paying attention to ai actually just like stop it in its tracks 
I don't think so. Um, you know, I don't want to cause too too much conflict here, but you know, so often, you know, the regulators are are, are looking out, right, and um, they're trying to predict the future. But so much regulation really comes from uh, an action that is then being followed up with regulations to try to not, um, you know, um, for that not to be repeated again, right? Um, and so, in many ways, I feel that the the tech folks are going to be pushing so fast, right, that there will be some controls, right, but not 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 enough to actually or so much to actually stop the innovation, right? Because I think it's really important that we don't stop the innovation, right? Because, look, we just talked about a, a bad example, right, of, of fair lending and if that was uh, to use the wrong data. But there's some incredibly good examples as well, right? So just inside of um, the development of tech. Um, so we have, you know, product managers, we have engineers and everything like that. Um, and we also have folks who are doing, uh, code review, right? That code review, I would much rather instead of someone having a set of second set of eyes, look at that code to actually be coding other exciting stuff that we can deliver to our customers. But they're not, they're doing a code review. But what if I could have a, a truly an AI engine that actually did that for me, right? And look to see, you know, how can I code better, right? From a security standpoint, from a uh, from an execution standpoint, et cetera. I think that that could be, you know, really exciting. I don't think we're going to get rid of developers. I think that would be a terrible idea, right? But I think that what we could, and this goes back to that example, right, of when do we really, I don't think we get rid of people. I think we bring those people to deliver additional value to our organization. Do, do you think, I mean, regulators are paying attention to, you know, some of the the broken dynamics in mortgage lending today. So MBA, IMB report is is showing, I think we're, Q1 cost to originate is surpassed 13 grand. Um, we can't, uh, we can't scale our way out of this cost structure right now. Um, it's, it's too expensive to produce a loan and, uh, some, something's gotta, gotta change there. Or we do run straight back into another headwinds of like fair housing and equal housing issues as we, we know the, the GSEs and FHFA are trying to increase access for, for LMI. And if, uh, if lenders can't profitably produce loans, then all of that work and focus is going to get, is going to get sidelined and, and backburnered in my humble opinion. Um, do you think regulators realize like how the role technology needs to play in cost reduction? That's a tough question. <laughs> tough, yeah. Or should they, should that even be that? Yeah. Maybe I'm, Going off in left field. No, there. no, no. But I think it's a good one, right? Um, and so, you know, what I want to be careful of is not making just, you know, sweeping statements around, uh, you know, all regulators. I think the regulators uh, are there for a reason, right? To ensure that lenders are doing the right thing, right? Um, especially around LMI and, and, and really, really everyone. Um and, you know, we, I've got an example, you know, 1071. So this is outside of mortgage, but this is small business lending, right? And uh, this is an amendment to ACOA uh, that is being implemented over the next, uh, you know, three to four or four years. Um, that costs real money to implement, right? Now, you know, there's new systems, there's new processes, new reporting requirements and everything like that. 
is it good for the uh, for the the country? Is it absolutely? Is it good for you know minorities, LGBTQI plus? Absolutely, right. But it does come with it some cost, and maybe that's why you know even with technology, our, our costs to originate do continue, right? Because we do have more more regulations now. Uh, thinking about uh, another use of AI, we actually we have a uh, a product inside of WK, and this is not a pitch, of course, but um, it's using AI to basically take five hundred thousand citations that are in the regs across state and federal um, legislation, and um, basically consolidating that into what are relevant citations for lenders. Uh, and then how how can they actually implement it within their environment? And so I think that's an amazing tool of AI, right? With with the growing number of regulatory requirements that ever changing, that AI could actually help the lender understand those and perhaps reduce costs uh, from that approach. Sorry, just to connect AI regulatory, we we sort of shifted around a little bit there. So I thought I'd just share that one. And I appreciate your comment on not making blanket statements on regulation. Like literally as we're recording here, Sarah Wheeler, our editor in chief for housing wire is in orange County moderating a a round table with um, the California department of financial protection and innovation, FHFA, MISMO, VA, like this is the people are at the table. Lenders are are in the room. So yeah, I, I, by no means was I trying to make blanket statements, but, uh, but also just uh, make sure we're thinking about the right things. It's the yin and yang, right? This is what we talked about before. Um, you know, we need that healthy tension um, to uh, to exist between the industry and the and the regulators. Um, I think they I think they see it. I think they you know they're trying their best, right, yeah. to find that find that balance. So here we are kind of in like the the end of Q2 2023. We're in an environment where there's a, a lot of pressure on, on mortgage lenders, um, a lot of pressure on potential home buyers who have high, looking at higher rates and higher prom, home prices, a lot of pressure on the, the technology companies that serve this industry because, because volume is low. And, uh, so it's an overall like high pressure ecosystem. As as we look out to the second half of twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four, what what are you hopeful for? Like, what do you um what what opportunities do you see, and like what what role do you want to play in what we knock on wood and say will be a healthier housing economy? Um, as we look past this 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 pressure cooker that we're currently navigating. Yeah, look, uh, obviously, so much of this is related to the rates, right? And um. You know the you know the agencies put out their projections or uh, predictions, and you know they're, they're there, right? Um, but the rates probably haven't come down as as fast as people first predicted, right? Um, so I think they're going to be still pretty high for a while, um, but that is going to allow when they come down for a refi uh, opportunity, right? I mean that's why we had such a uh, an amazing uh, refi, you know, market for so long is because people did have, you know, these higher rates. Uh, you know, although you know, is six seven percent actually a, a high rate? I I remember my first mortgage, and I you know I compared it to my dad's first mortgage. My dad's was like a twenty percent. I was at six. Uh, that seemed incredible, right? But obviously, six is more than uh, you know the two and a half. 
right? Um, so I think rates are, you know, are going to, you know, affect a, a lot of it. Um, I think, um, you know, we're starting to see people diversify, right, both in technology and on the lender side, um, right? Um, if, if rates are so high, we can still originate, you know, home equity, right? That's, that can still be there. We're not negatively impacting someone's, you know, primary mortgage, uh, and so that's that's good. Uh, likewise, at, at WK, you know, mortgage is a part of our business. It's not all of our business, right? And so we're able to continue to invest in mortgage and in these other asset classes because these other asset classes may not be affected so much. So I think it's just looking around and making sure that, um, you know, you are looking for those opportunities that are, um, you know, maybe different. From what you've uh, you've faced over the last few years, right? Which were, were pretty good. Yeah, I mean, so much pressure has been on the the conforming loan category, and there's just not a lot of that that entry level like uh, kind of conform, conforming lo- loans that fit inside of the conforming loan bands. So lenders have like, especially in the coast, have been forced to to look to jumbo um, opportunity in home equity opportunity in non-QM, but a lot of the jumbo lending and, uh, and home equity lending has historically been done or at least been the strongest from depositories who, uh, you know, at least at the, the, the big money center bank level have showed less and less interest in being, um, you know, retail facing, uh, mortgage shops. So like, where do you, do you think that market dynamics like drive, like a bigger opportunity for depositories or we see uh, IMBs kind of emerge in areas where uh, the the banks had a, a stronger presence in the past or do you, do you think like, you know, it's more of the same? I think all of that. Uh, (laughs) how's that for a great answer yeah no i i'm saying that as i'm recognizing that wk probably has clients across all of these categories and doesn't want to make bets (laughs) as do we so yeah no i mean it's um i mean it truly is all of that right i think we're we're seeing the banks um you know reconsider what they have right in regards to their portfolio um, you know, I think the, 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 the biggest area of surprise for me, uh, was, you know, that I think the, the IMBs are really considering these home equities, you know, and they're looking at outlets that allow them to do that, right? Of course, they're not, you know, flush with from cash, right? They need funding, right? So they need to do something with this asset, uh, once they have created it. And I think that's sort of that excitement between, you know, uh, new opportunity and being able to be digital, right? I think that's uh, that gives an advantage to uh, to folks in that space. One of the biggest weaknesses of IMBs has been their ability to recapture. And um, with the, if you have a really strong focus on first time home buyers, like how do you sustain that relationship after someone's in the house? Like can you do can you do that refi? Can you do that that home equity loan? Can you help them with their their second home or or forever home? And uh, I think that's like part of the promise of IMBs expanding the the product reach a little bit further as they can serve that consumer that they work so hard to and paid so much to obtain in the beginning. Um, and uh, and I think that's something that consumers also want too. I mean, like if you built, you know, you have somebody who's like hopefully a trusted uh, loan or loan originator that's giving you advice. Be nice to go back to them, and be able to to help to help the future products if they're competitive on rate. Yeah, and I think you know certainly for the the large IMBs, right, the the rockets of the the world and things like that, you you see 
them touching more things, right? You know, there's rocket money now, right? Where you can, you know, add all of your, uh, you know, transactions in, into it, right? Um, I don't know what the, you know, I'll be honest, I don't know what the data usage uh, restrictions are there or not. But look, it's it's really exciting that they um, can start to offer, uh, you know, a greater portfolio of products. We've seen that with, um, you know, with Lone Depot and, and some of the stuff they did with Mellow and all of that type of thing. I think they do become, start to become a more holistic, um, you know, provider of, of services, which I think is is exciting. You don't need to be a depository to do that. Yeah. I mean, that Rockets had some smart acquisitions, like that Truebill deal, like opened them up to a whole different like level of transparency into the consumer. And uh, and now we're starting to see some like services and, and tech companies come in to help the mortgage origination shops, the IMBs and, and real estate brokers kind of be uh, a little more ingrained in their in their customer's life and like offer them a, a place to connect their their financial picture and I mean, the promise, like the big thing I think is on the horizon is having more uh, constant credit evaluation. So like um, uh, IMB can come back to their borrowers with offers in the future preemptively um, data backed uh, around inflection points in life. And we try, I was at uh, City in the financial crisis and we were working on like something like that in the the consumer bank and I I left and moved on with life before that saw the main stage. But, um, but it was, uh, it's cool to see that coming forward now because it actually I think is you know, it's good for the industry but also really consumer favorable like man I wish somebody was knocking on my door every time I had the ability to lower my monthly payment or access equity to to do a home improvement project or consolidate my my auto loans or whatever it is like I, I want someone knocking and telling me about these things so it's not always a pool transaction yeah I think that's uh, so interesting around it's the proactive and although I may not use it from a consumer perspective, I was just talking to someone this past week about undisclosed debt monitoring, right? And how that was a real boom, right? Because, you know, you used to pull credit once, you know, maybe you, you pull it at the, the end, but um, just before close, but what happens if you find undisclosed debt, right? That can put everything into, uh, into chaos. And so that proactive nature, of uh, UDM was was really interesting for the industry, right? This sort of constant monitoring. And you only needed to be alerted if something had really changed, right? And I think that's what you're talking about for the consumer as well, right? Like you don't, like, you're right. I've got so many, I've got so much data that I need to think about, right? <laughs> and so the chances of me logging into a website to look at it and consider it is pretty low. Right. Gosh, I think about my 401k, dare I say it. Right. That's how I sort of operate my 401k. They, you know, they tell you, you shouldn't be watching it every day, but I sure would like to know and, you know, some proactive steps. And I think that's what you're talking about. Right. What are these value added offers that could be made? And it all flows back to like where we, you know, started on like talking about electronic uh like records and closing processes like all all of that's necessary to be able to connect a financial picture um in in the long run i mean it's uh like what we have to i mean you talked about um undisclosed credit monitoring i mean the, the hot topic in the industry right now is is trigger leads and like how uh 
Like, how do we separate from like what might have been, you know, an unattractive data driven practice to something that's actually like a industry friendly, business friendly, um, consumer friendly, like data practice? Uh, I don't know. It's for me, it all, it all connects. Like we have to be more digital on the front end at the closing process and on the back end to like to enable this type of ecosystem. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's the discussion about you know digital close and you know uh, the conversion of that paper to actually data, right? And so you know one of the things about you know understanding you know why you know why we focused on the e note um, is really around when that asset is traded, right? You're you're committing to the investor that that's you know that you're delivering that asset, right? The one that they that was signed is the one that you're delivering. And when it's paper, it's a QA process, right? It's a QC process. It's a percentage of the transactions that might be being reviewed. And even if they're reviewed, that human can get it wrong, right? So we've done you know. Um, you know, backward looking analysis, right, of, you know, previous, you know, documents that were QC'd and they're not always right, right? Even though, you know, that you would think they were because, you know, a couple of humans looked at them. And so the conversion of these documents into sort of really data elements is really interesting because now you can, you know, you, you know what you're getting and you can also analyze that data in a different way as well. So I think that that's that that's a really interesting piece. All right, Simon, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining me for an episode of of Housing News. Loved the the diverse places our conversation went, and uh, I think we covered a lot of the topics that innovators, originators, executives in the industry are you know are, are focused on as they navigate this pressure cooker. Pressure cooker that is the twenty twenty three market. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please take a few seconds to rate Housing News on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot for the show, and we really do appreciate and listen to your feedback. Also, we're gearing up for Housing Wire Annual in October. Please visit housingwire.com forward slash events for full details about our big annual event in Austin, Texas. 